Well, this morning we are continuing to look at Matthew chapter 1. The culmination of Matthew's genealogy, because we sort of stopped in the middle of the narrative, I just want to uh, uh, take us up to and through that paragraph real quickly to the point where we left off last week. Matthew 1, 1, in familiar Old Testament idiom, Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And while the idiom has a familiar ring, especially on Jewish ears, the statement is astounding. The Messiah has come into the world. The long-awaited Messiah has come. Think if you were there and reading it for the first time in that first century, and you pick up Matthew's gospel and you go, you're a Jew, and you go, wow, you know, this is new. What does this mean, this gospel, this good news? And you pick it up, and everything you've been familiar with all your life, you're told on the first sentence, in the very first phrase, the first half a sentence, that it has now come to fulfillment, come to fruition in this man, Jesus. Matthew finishes his genealogy. He works through the genealogy, and he concludes or comes to a culmination point where two individuals are brought to the fore, Joseph who is said to be the husband of Mary, and Mary, who is said to be the mother of the Messiah. And it's clear that Mary's the biological mother, and Joseph is not the biological father. So Matthew opens and closes his genealogy by announcing the primary person of all of redemptive history. Remember, in that genealogy, he encapsulates all of the history of redemption. <clears throat> He's the Messiah, that's the focus. We just considered last week something that's you know, sort of important. We're dealing with the Gospels. And the Gospels are very similar in many ways, except for John. But they're similar uh, after a certain point. Up to a certain point, they each have a prologue. They each have an introduction to their Gospel, and they're somewhat different. But one thing is true about all of them. They all present Jesus as the Messiah, Matthew is not unique. Matthew doesn't have a version of the gospel in which Jesus is the Messiah, while there's another version in which he's not. All of the gospels show, demonstrate at the beginning, at the opening of their gospels, that Jesus is the Messiah. And also all of the gospels, regardless of the differences or the perspectives, different perspectives they have in their prologues, all of the gospels present Jesus as human and divine at the beginning. This is how they open. Whether it's Matthew presenting the conception of the Holy Spirit and the physical birth, whether it's Mark just stating it clearly, Jesus is the Son of God, whether it's Luke, again, presenting the conception and birth, or whether it's John reaching back in his terminology back into eternity about the essence of the Word and the Word being made flesh, it doesn't matter. They all clearly start with Jesus not simply as the Messiah, but as God the Son. And they all culminate, or at least their prologues culminate into the place where they have a common narrative together. <clears throat> and so here is Matthew, all of the Gospels from beginning, each one from the beginning leaves nothing in doubt about the identity of Jesus. Matthew then goes through, and this is probably the last time you ever see this slide, so if you want a picture of it hang on the wall, just let me know. Um, <clears throat> But here are the 14 generations that uh, uh, sort of structure the genealogy of Matthew. We don't know why he did it that way. He just did. 
And something to understand about Matthew is that Matthew focuses on Joseph. Luke's gospel clearly focuses on Mary, Elizabeth. <clears throat> focuses on those two women. Sort of the woman's perspective, the woman's point of view, the woman's experience of this birth of this conception and birth of Jesus. But here Matthew is presenting the gospel from the standpoint, the narrative standpoint of Joseph. That's important. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, when Matthew begins, really begins his narrative, he says the birth of Jesus is as follows. This is how it happened. This is what he finishes his genealogy with. This is how it came about that you had this Joseph and Mary. His mother's Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And remember, we're not to confuse this with our modern concept of engagement. A betrothal was a full and legal marriage. They were married for all intents and purposes. And Matthew makes it clear that before they came together, that is, before they had any intimate relationships whatsoever, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, Matthew doesn't give any details here, not because he's a guy and doesn't care or anything like that. It's just it wasn't significant to his purpose. And it's taken up in the Gospel of Luke. A lot of the gaps are filled in. But she was somehow, some way, we're not told, found to be with child. But the most significant thing is by the Holy Spirit. Matthew is crystal clear and specific on the source of this pregnancy. It is clearly and only the agency of the Holy Spirit. In modern terms, the Holy Spirit miraculously supplies the 23 chromosomes a male normally contributes to the project, as it were. Conception by the Holy Spirit. And this is at the outset of things. This is like the first sentence you get when Matthew starts to give us the narrative. He encapsulates everything that's critical, and he's going to <clears throat> explain that even further. And it's by the Holy Spirit, and this reference to the Holy Spirit is critical to the unique identity of Jesus. Remember, this is what sets Jesus apart from every other human being. It sets Jesus apart from Adam, who was created directly from the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It sets him apart from Eve, who <clears throat> was made from that rib of Adam. It sets Jesus apart from every, every other human being after that because every other human being in the history of existence and eternity comes from human procreation, a father and a mother. And Jesus is so clearly unique, and Matthew brings this out at the beginning of things. As Matthew sort of continues, we want to say the narrative, the story. Matthew presents things, again, from the standpoint of Joseph. He's Mary's husband, not the biological father. He reiterates this statement. We are to remember that and know that and, and hold to that. And his character, he was a righteous man. He was a man who loved righteousness. He had piety and he had principles, and he was a man for whom this apparent infidelity was a moral disaster. This was hard for him, just in view of the unrighteousness of it, at least the apparent unrighteousness. And Joseph must have been overwhelmed with grief and confusion and dismay and conflict. He was a righteous man, but he was also a man whose righteousness was clearly and fully aligned with kindness and goodness and mercy, because that's what it is in God. He's light and love. And he did not want to disgrace her. He was brokenhearted. He was upset. I'm sure he was even angry. But he was not going to become vengeful and disgrace her and put her to a public shame. 
Joseph could have made this a public issue. He could have let the Jewish law take its course. He could have appealed to Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24, and let the law take its course. But instead, he resolved that he was going to give her a bill of divorcement according to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and he planned to send her away secretly. But as he was thinking about this, as he was trying to sort out his own mind and heart and all the conflict going on and all the emotions going everywhere, God appears to him. An angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream, and he tells Joseph, first of all, you are, remember, you are the son of David. You are of the bloodline of the house of King David. That has not only significance for, you know, for Joseph just to calm himself, to think about things, but it's going to be even more meaningful as the angel announces and as Jesus is born and Joseph sees his part in it. He says, don't fret and don't worry. Openly take Mary to be your wife. Take her into your home. It's the Holy Spirit who is the agent of this conception. And the impact of this news must have just been overwhelmingly good for Joseph. All of his fears, all of his upsetment was assuaged. And so we come to the second sentence, as it were, the second uh, point of the message of the angel this morning. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne, uh, and it's a throne of grace and mercy. It's a throne of glory and majesty, and it's a throne where your son is right now sitting at the right hand. We're reading the history of how you brought him uh, into being as the God-man, Jesus. And Lord, we just pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts and fill our souls. Surely this was a moment, this was a time in which you were full of joy. The angels are full of joy. We, all during this time, we know for sure at his birth, the angels are announcing everything. There's joy in heaven. Uh, there's recognition in heaven of, of all that's going on. Your eternal purposes are becoming now realized. Jesus is now becoming manifest in the flesh. Oh Lord, just pray this morning that you would speak to us, encourage our hearts, show in our hearts by your Holy Spirit the true significance of these things, that we will have our faith confirmed. Um, Lord, that's what this gospel is written for, to confirm the faith of believers. And uh, Lord, we will have our faith confirmed and, and clarity be made. And uh, Lord, these things would be indelibly printed on our minds and hearts. And only you can do that. Uh, a preacher can't, eloquence can't. Delivery of a message can't. Um, Lord, only the Holy Spirit can. And we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the second sort of stanza of the angelic message in this dream to Joseph. We read, first of all, she will bear a son. This conception has occurred with Mary, and she's going to bear a son. There will be a male child who will certainly be born. She will bear a son. This is going to happen. There's not going to be anything to trouble this pregnancy. There's not going to be a, uh, an early termination of this pregnancy. This, this is going to come to pass. There's going to be a normal gestation. There's going to be a normal birth. Jesus the Messiah is going to be seen here and is demonstrated here to be fully and personally human from the beginning of his existence as the man Jesus. See, early on in the church, there were people that would teach that, well, there was this, this human being, Jesus, who got born, and he was a good guy and everything, and at some point, the spirit of, 
the son came and adopted him, and then the spirit left him when he died. And they call that adoptionism. All right? And that just doesn't work here, does it? Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit from the beginning. The spirit, he himself, is there and present. Just like any other human being has a conscious awareness, he has his divine conscious awareness present there in the womb of Mary from the beginning. She's going to bear a son. There will be this normal gestation, this normal birth process. Another thing we read, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, normally in that day, the father picks the name. You remember the episode that we'll read sometime in the future, we'll go through but remember the episode with John the Baptist's father, Zacharias. He didn't believe some things, and <clears throat> he wasn't allowed to speak for the whole pregnancy of Elizabeth, and I'm pretty sure she was happy for that. They'd been married a long time. Um, there was some benefit to that, I'm sure, for her. But in the end, he finally says his name is John. He writes it out, and he gets his voice back. So the name was given to John, but here, <clears throat> that's a father picks the name usually, but here the name has been predetermined by God himself. You shall call his name Jesus. This is what the angel commands Joseph. There's basically two commands the angel has given. Take unto yourself Mary, your wife. Take her. You know, don't worry about all this divorce stuff anymore. Take her to your wife. It's okay. And you're going to call the child that's born Jesus. Two commandments he had to do. Now, Mary had been similarly instructed by the angel Gabriel, and we don't know, maybe it was Gabriel speaking in the dream. We're not told that. It's not something we need to know. I don't think we need to speculate. It was an angel. Could have been Gabriel. Good chance it was, but it's not really that important, or we would know it. Mary had been instructed by Gabriel with almost these very same words, you're going to bear a son, and you are going to call his name Jesus. And so it's interesting that here a husband and a wife both separately get a confirmation about something that was pretty dicey in their lives, wasn't it? We haven't come together yet, and Mary's pregnant. And people, more and more people are knowing about it. How do we explain this? How do we relate to it? How do we deal with it? Well, both of them had had this confirmation from God, so they both together, at least speaking with themselves at the dinner table, could say, we know the truth, though others just will not believe it. We know the truth. And folks, that's what you have to do sometimes in your lives. You're going to be slandered for things that you know not to be true because you know what the truth is. And that's where you and your spouse, husband and wife, get unified on things, be clear about things, and encourage each other and stand together against a world that is going to misrepresent you all that it can simply because that's what the world just loves to do. All you have to do is read Isaiah. I've been immersed in Isaiah 1 through 12, and it's just, oh gosh, just the way people are is just awful. Um, You see it described by God in its awfulness. We see it happening in the world, and they all do it with a smile, but Isaiah presents it, and it's just utter awfulness of the way the human race operates. And here they knew that they were going to have to endure that, and they did but they knew the truth because God had given them both a conviction. But you're going to call his name Jesus. You're going to get this name from somebody else, and this name is coming from who? Who is giving Jesus his name? We get a commandment from the angel. Do you think the angel picked it? Do you think God the Father left it up for grabs and say, hey, you know, let's have a a lottery and let's pick a name for my eternal son, my beloved son? 
You think that's how it went down? Or do you think that this is something God, for all eternity, thought about? I mean, you all thought that you spent a lot of time picking a name for your child. And you do. As much as your children don't get that, wait till they have to pick theirs. God spent all eternity thinking about this name. God mulled over every name he could come up with. What name will represent my son in the most significant way? What's the name I want for him forever? There's not going to be any, well, let's call Jesus something else. Let's going to give him a nickname. No nicknames here. This is the name by which he will be called by everybody and by the Father forever. God the Father picked this name for his beloved son. And he picked the name Jesus. We know it as Jesus, that's how we pronounce it, but originally it was Jehoshua, means Jehovah is salvation. And later that Jehoshua got contracted to Yeshua, and Yeshua is a little bit different than Jehoshua. Jehoshua sort of focuses on what God is, whereas Yeshua is more of a verb form, which means he will certainly save. That's the meaning of Yeshua. It's not God is Savior, but he will certainly save. Now, that makes him a Savior, of course. But it puts this dynamic into it. This is going to happen. He's going to do it. God says, the name I want to pick for my son is going to represent something that I'm going to do. Something I've been going to do from all eternity. Something that I'm going to do in time and something that will have eternal results. It will echo into eternity. Yeshua. He will certainly save. The Greeks took Yeshua and came up with Jesus, the best they could do to sort of make the name sound the same, a Hellenized form of Yeshua. And then, because of the history of the West, we get the Latinized version of it, Jesus. Jesus. He will certainly save. That's his name. And we're always to remember it. What does it mean for he will save? There's a lot of this. We could spend message after message, and in fact, that's what we're going to do in this body of believers for the rest of the time we're here. We're going to be talking about what it means that he will save, because that's kind of like the point of it all. But I was reading one commentator. I finally had a chance this week to actually read commentators. With all my books, you all have no idea how much I don't, chance I don't get to read. I get everything all put together. I'm like, oh, well, I got 15 minutes left. No commentators this, night, this week. But I got to read a couple this week. And one of them had a really, I thought, a great definition of save. To be saved means to be emancipated from the greatest evil. and to be placed in the possession of the greatest good. To be freed from the greatest evil and to come into possession of the greatest good. He will save. 
He will save us from the greatest evil, and the greatest evil isn't an empty bank account. It isn't a car that breaks down. It's not a house that's falling apart. It's not children bugging you day in and day out. That's not the greatest evil. It's certainly not a corrupt government. That's not the greatest evil. And we have to remember that in our day when we're trying to absorb the radical changes happening in our own society. It's, just, it's miles ahead of us and we're, we're running to keep up and catch our breath with what the wicked are doing to our country. But it's not the greatest evil by far. The greatest evil is the guilt of sin because everything we see happening in our country or in our own lives is the result of one awful thing, sin. You see, when you go to a doctor, the doctor can do one of two things. He can either fix what's broken or he can mask the results of what's broken. And God did not send his son into the world to mask the results of what's broken. He came into the world to fix the greatest evil, which is sin. Sin in its pollution, sin in its power, sin in its punishment, sin and death. Those two always go together. Sin is not a few things I fall short of and oh golly, I'll get it better the next time. Sin and death. The greatest evil. Many of you are still considered young or starting in there into what you, you might call middle age, but you're still considered young. You consider it old. <clears throat> That's all a matter of perspective. When you get to be my age, you guys are still youngsters. You still have a whole life ahead of you. You still have years ahead of you in order to figure this out and figure that out. So if you squander a little time here or squander a little time there, it's not a big deal. You've got lots of it. But as the years go by, you have less and you have less and you have less. And you start to feel the reality that death dismantles your humanity and takes you out of this world. And you're done. You take with you everything you've done, all of your successes and all of your failures. You don't get to be, grow up and become a fireman, you don't get a do over. You get what you got. Death. The greatest evil. And we're possessed, placed in the possession of the greatest good, freedom from sin, life, access to God, fellowship with God, eternal life and glory. God spends an eternity and says, I want my son's name by which he will be called by the entire human race for time and eternity. I want his name to represent that he will save from the greatest evil to the greatest good. That's how we embrace the Lord. That's how we think of him. That's how we love him. That's how we sort through life. That's how we present him. That's how we proclaim him. That's how we pray to him. That's how we glory in him. 
and he's going to save his people. And it's just interesting. You probably haven't thought of it. I hadn't thought of it. I've read this passage, thought of this passage a lot, read it a lot the last few weeks. And it just didn't hit me. Tell me yesterday, he's going to save his people. And for myself, I tend to shy away from talking about election and definite atonement, mainly because it conjures up in people's minds their crazy ideas about it, and then I get judged, never get a chance to explain. And so I reserve those discussions for when I'm with someone who really wants to know and is really going to listen. Otherwise, I feel like in some way I'm casting my pearls before the wrong animal. Because of our group this morning, I'm going to emphasize this. I hadn't really planned to, but never know who you're going to get. I just, if we have visitors that aren't going to understand their first visit, I sometimes say, okay, we'll talk about that later. But he's going to save his people. These are his people. Doesn't say he's going to save every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world, does it? I mean, all you have to do is just run the math. Jesus was born on or around 2 B.C. I like to say 0 A.D., but there is no such zero. You've got to go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. There's nothing in between. That kind of blows my math out. But <clears throat> How many people have been born into the world? There have been 4,000 years of world history. And they never heard the gospel. I remember at times in, <clears throat> I had joined this denominational church, Southern Baptist Church. I'm probably a member of four or five Southern Baptist churches. I don't like they ever get you off the rolls. And I was uh, inexperienced in churches. I had been in house churches for a long time. And God had been filling our hearts with sovereign grace and the implications of it for several years and came to this Southern Baptist church and I thought they'd all be glad to hear about Calvinism. Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) I was wrong, 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 wrong. They weren't glad to hear it. But I think we're glad to hear it once we've seen our sin, once we've seen the greatest evil that we're in. And we see our alienation from God. And we see that if it's left up to us, we will never choose the Son of God. We will never do that on our own. When the gospel is presented to us, it will just be noise at best. Make us angry at worst. Left to ourselves in our own sin. Because that's the state of every human heart, alienated against God. But when we see our sin and we see our helplessness and we see our emptiness and we see our bondage to sin, when God starts to awaken us, we start thinking, gosh, I wish I could be saved, but my heart's so rotten, how can I be saved? I want to believe on Jesus. This is how I got saved, by the way. I wanted to believe on, they told me I had to believe on Jesus. I wanted to be saved. Didn't really know what that was, but I knew it was way better than what I was going through. 
And I wanted to know the true God. I'd been on every path, transcendental meditation path out there and Zen Buddhism path and all those paths I'd been on them. Kind of like, you know, Ecclesiastes. I tried this, tried that, tried the other. None of it worked. None of it brought me to what I now know to be the living God. They told me I had to believe on Jesus. I walked an aisle. They said, you've got to believe on Jesus. And I walked an aisle. I said, you're saved. And I'm like, I know that Jesus is true. And I know he can save sinners. Whatever that limited concept was in my mind and heart at the time. But I knew I wasn't saved. I knew that walking an aisle did not make me saved. If they had said, well, decide for Jesus, I was already deciding for Jesus. But I was not saved. And I remember being on my sister's bed just weeping before the Lord, saying, oh God, this is just like all the other religions. I have to do something to be saved, and I can't do it. That's why I'm here, because I can't do it. Now I'm finished, I'm undone. I have to believe, and I can't do that. And who who knows why in the providence of God I open my Bible and there is Ephesians 2.8, by grace you're saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Couldn't believe my eyes. But some way, sometime between that moment and the next day, I was born of God. Don't know how, don't know when, couldn't tell you the moment. But there was a time when I passed from death to life. I was happy to hear about the sovereignty of God because it was my only hope. I didn't know it at the time. A year later, I was railing on Calvinism in my ignorance, but that's what the Lord saved me in. One of the next passages of Scripture that God impressed on my heart was John 6. No one can come unto me except the Father who sent me draw him. I remember there's Pete, the guy who had been witnessing to me. And I showed the passage to Pete. I said, Pete, does that mean what I think it means? And he goes, nah, it doesn't mean that. I'm like, oh, okay. But there was God filling my heart with that. You see, when God saves sinners, he fills our heart with his love. And it is, by its very nature and essence, electing love. There is no other love of God that saves a human being. There is no love for free wheelers and then love for Calvinists. There's no such thing as that. There is one love of God that is from all eternity and he sent his son to save us with that love, his people. We are his people. Jesus came to save us because we're his. I mean, you could walk into a nursery of little kids and a fire starts... And if your children are there, whose children are you taking out first? Do you want to leave any behind? No. But there's one group of children that belong to you. And they mean more to you than life itself. We are the people of God and Jesus came to save his people. This is a John 6 moment in the book of Matthew. This is a John 13 through 17 moment. Right here in this one phrase, his people. 
in the book of Matthew because Matthew was a Jew and Matthew was gathering up into his people everything that the Old Testament talks about. The people of God. Are you one of his people? If your answer is, I'm not worthy of it, well, then you've got a good chance of being one, because you're not. And if your answer is, well, I'm working myself up to be worthy of it, well, you're never going to make that grade, by the way. You're never going to personally be worthy of it. You'll spend an eternity trying, and you'll never be worthy of being one of the children of God. So forget that route. It doesn't take you anywhere but a big cul-de-sac where you just go in circles. If you have the Holy Spirit in your life, if you believe on Jesus from the heart out, if he is your treasure, I don't care where you're at this morning, if you're just in the doldrums, if you've been empty for weeks or even months, if God seems far away but, and you can barely work up an emotional attachment, but you say, Lord, I just, I just want to know you. Right now I'm a mess. Right now I'm off in the weeds. But if someone says, here's a billion dollars to trade in Jesus, no thanks, not doing it. Not ever. You're one of the people of God. You're one of the people that when God sent his son, when the Holy Spirit at that moment in time created or established or however word you want to use, I don't want to become a heretic, but whatever word you want to use, brought into being Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son in human flesh. Your name was there. You were the reason for it. And so when Satan comes and starts whispering in your ear that, eh, you're not really worthy of this, and, eh, you know, God used to like you because you used to be cute, but not anymore. So that's how Satan works in you. When you get more mature in Christ, he doesn't come with radical, usually radical, you know, darts with fiery, five fiery darts, foom, 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 God isn't real, blah, blah, all the stuff he throws at you. He usually comes with a subtle little whisper. And he starts to draw you away. We are his people. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And this is why he sent his son. He will save his people. He's a save from sin. And it's not just sin in general that he's going to save from. It says, save them from their sins. Jesus didn't come to save you from sin. He came to save you from your sins. You see, every one of your sins has your name on it. It's yours. It's got your DNA print there. And the way to deal with sin is not to, you know, throw it in a pile and say, oh, that's just sin, you know, that's just out there, that's just what it is. 
It's not to talk about sin in the generic. It's not to talk about sin in the third person. When you come to God and you have dealings with God and you think about Jesus, you have to deal with your sin in the first person. It's your sin. It's my sin. First John is just so awesome. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's righteous to forgive us of our sins. He's faithful and he's righteous. God deals with our sin faithfully. He is faithful to Jesus who has paid the price for our sin. He's faithful to his promise that if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. He is righteous. When sin is paid for, it's paid for. I mean, if you pay your electric bill and a week later you get a a note that says, well, you owe it again, you're going to like, no, no, I paid for it. Paid for it once. If they say you owe it and you got to pay it again, you're going to say, no, here's my receipt. It's paid for. And if they keep hounding you, you're going to give that letter to a lawyer. And that's actually what 1 John says. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's got the receipt. He's going to show it to the judge. Your sin is paid for. But it's your sin. The complaint against you doesn't read, you know, Steve kind of sins. It'll say, no, Steve said this, Steve did this. It's all enumerated. It's all itemized. It's clear. God brings a conviction, and then Jesus presents the receipt. Paid for. From sin, from real sin. We must look at our own sin and iniquity fully in the face. We must acknowledge and confess our sins because he is faithful and he is righteous to cleanse us from confessed sins. Now, if there's some sins we don't know about, just because there's probably way more of those than we do know about, God's taking care of those. But the ones he brings to our attention, the ones that our conscience tells us we should be dealing with, those are the sins we confess. And this reality that he's going to save his people from sin is forever inscribed, not only in his name, but on the palms of his hands. His palms shout Jesus. This is the name God has chosen to forever designate and define his son. This is the name in the entire spectrum of its meaning and intent by which we are to know Jesus. It's the name we use most when we pray, when we sing, when we exhort, and we admonish one another. It should always be there, and every time we use the name, remember, save from sin. You go to admonish someone in the name of Jesus. How can you be harsh when Jesus has come to save from sin? How can we be judgmental when Jesus has come to save us all from sin? This is the name we call upon when we are troubled, when we are defeated, and this is the name we call upon when we are calm and victorious. Some of them may say, well, I don't know about those times, calm and victorious. 
Those seem few and far between. That's only because God loves you, and he's making you his image every day. But no matter what state you're in, my brother, my sister, my fellow believer, Jesus will save you from your sin. Now, Jesus has a whole lot of names ascribed to him in the Old Testament. Can some of you name those, you kids? He's the, any of you learn that? Old Testament names for Jesus? Any? Any of you fans of the Messiah, singing the Messiah? His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. If you don't want me singing, you need to be telling Well, all these amazing names ascribed to Jesus by God. This is still the one he put as his first name. People who don't know me will call me Mr. Cowden. People who know me well will call me Steve. People who know me too well will call me Possum, but we won't go there. They'll call me Steve. They'll call me Steve because they are on a first-name basis with Steve. It's an acceptable relationship, and every believer is on a first-name basis with the Son of God. And his name is because he will save. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to give wisdom. He's not some guru, some you know, bigger and better guru than some Far Eastern religion. He's not some wise sage. He's not someone who came to amaze. Though he is wise and did amaze, he came into the world to save sinners, and this is stamped in his birth certificate. 2 B.C. Now quickly, Matthew goes on. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. All this took place, Matthew 1, 22. The angel has finished speaking, and now Matthew introduces a further comment into the narrative. It's a sort of a narrative footnote, if you will. And here Matthew is just saying, hey, look, everything that I've just talked about in verses 18 through 21, all of this, you wrap it all up, here's what it is. It's happened, it's occurred, all the details of it, all the reality of it, it has occurred in order to fulfill. It's taken place in history, It's not some nice story. It's not some myth. It's history. And it took place. And it took place to fulfill. It took place to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy is God not foreseeing the future, but God creating the future. God determining the future. And that's an important thing. Many people fall into the the trap of free will because they think that God just has a bigger crystal ball and foresees faith and foresees this and foresees that. And they get into all these absurd discussions that are not anywhere in the scripture. See, they think they're intelligent discussions, but if you just go, well, is that in the Bible? They probably won't even know that it's nowhere near the Bible to discuss those things. Because the Bible comes from a totally different vantage point. The future happens because God brings it to pass. And God has framed the entirety of human history We call it the history of redemption. 
And he's presented it in the Old Testament scriptures. Little by little, he states that history. Little by little, he tells what's going to happen and describes it and defines it, where there's type and shadow and promise and prophecy and all those things that point forward into a reality yet to come. All of redemptive history and all of its details is the result of sovereign providence. So what is taking to pass here in Matthew is fulfilling a purpose of God. History is not left up to the so-called free will of man. It's a biggest disaster enough when God's in control. What if he wasn't? These all come to pass to fulfill. God has created the future and now the future is being brought to pass. And it's to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. See, we live in a day, it's, it's, it's a crazy day. It used to be bad, but now it's got crazy. And I, I'm not even sure people even care about it anymore, but they used to debate, at least recently, more recently, you know, what is inspiration? And Satan does what he always does, switches price tags. Satan will have some of his crew, all scholarly and everything, of course, all credentialed and everything, of course. And they'll say, well, we believe in inspiration. God inspired those prophets, and they wrote. Does that sound like inspiration to you? Some of you might be saying, uh, well, I don't know, maybe it does. <laughs> Sounds pretty close, doesn't it? It's called neo-orthodoxy, where it uses all the terminology of orthodoxy but imports into the definitions behind the scenes all of the liberalism of the 1800s that survived historic analysis. They will come to you and say, those prophets were inspired. Isaiah was inspired to write what he wrote. Is that what Matthew says here? Does it talk about Matthew being inspired? What's the phrase? Look at your Bible. What does it say? Which was what? Spoken by who? What do you think Matthew's doctrine of inspiration is? Do you think it's the neo-orthodox version that goes into little loop-de-loops to get out of the word of God being the word of God? Or do you think it's plain and simple and direct and straightforward? God spoke. And what was spoken by the Lord was written. And it was spoken through the prophet, but it was written. And we know that Matthew here is referring to the written word because he quotes from the written word. Spoken by the Lord. What was written in Isaiah is the exact equivalent of God speaking. We could also talk about not only the inspiration of Scripture, but the expiration of Scripture. First, or Second Timothy says, all Scripture is God-breathed. That is, breathed out by God. So it just depends on what angle you're looking at. Is it, you're looking at the angle where it's expired by God, or where it's inspired into the what? Not the prophet. All what? Isn't God-breathed? All scripture, not prophets. 
Scriptures. Now, did the prophets have the Holy Spirit? Sure, the Holy Spirit was involved, absolutely. But the end product is not inspired prophets, that's not the end of the line. The end of the line is inspired Scripture. And that's where the liberals and the neo-Orthodox will catch you because you won't be thinking, you'll go, oh yeah, well that sounds like good inspiration, and all they've done is feed you a line, Satan's line. Inspiration, according to Matthew and according to every New Testament writer, terminates not on the speaker, not on the writer, but on what is written. That's the ultimate destination of inspiration. So that what is written is spoken by the Lord. Whatever human agency is involved or whatever personalization of those scriptures we can discern, whatever is contributed by Isaiah to this passage before us, his elevated style versus perhaps Micah, who was a country bumpkin. Whatever the differences may be, Isaiah's words end up being God's words, no matter what. Now, human agency is spoken through the prophet. Human agency is acknowledged. Human agency will leave its own fingerprints on background and style and temperament and emotional state. Human agency can involve research. You read in the histories that you know, aren't the rest of the, the uh, acts of this king written in the prophet so-and-so or written in the histories? Proverbs talks about editing. The men of Hezekiah copied these out. There's editing of the word of God. There's emotions all over the Psalms, whether joy or sorrow, whether peace or whether distress. But those emotions as they're written down, as they're expressed, though they are human emotions, the the writing and recording of them is inspired of God. Sometimes God just dictates his word, just directly and specifically. Don't be afraid when someone says, well, the Bible's not wrote dictation. Yes, it is. In places, it absolutely is. But whatever the dynamics, the end result is the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Whatever is used through the prophet, however the prophet enters in, however much of Isaiah's imprint is left on Isaiah, what is written is exactly what God wanted to be written. It is his word that he will take his entire being and stand behind. There's all the discussions today about fiat currency, right? used to be currency. You could get a dollar bill and it was a silver certificate. Supposedly you could go down and get some silver for it. To do that today, you've got to go down to Jason's Gold Store. But <clears throat> nowadays it says this is a Federal Reserve note. It means there's nothing behind it. It's air. There's a big giant IOU in a safe at the Federal Reserve. And they're throwing more IOUs in it by the trillions right now. It's crazy. And it says it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Good luck on that. But the word of God, backed by the full faith and credit of the eternal Yahweh. You can take it to the bank. It's the word of God. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And this just sort of finishes up this thought and we're done for today. We have here the first instance of Matthew's distinctive formula quotations. 
Now, Matthew's given us a ton of genealogy, which we could almost say was quotes from the Old Testament, but it's not really put as that. It's put as just a genealogy, which he <clears throat> derived from the Old Testament, certainly, modified to fit a pattern which he felt would be useful for who knows what reason. But he has throughout Matthew, the book of Matthew, he's famous for formula quotations is what they're called, and there's 10 of them. They occur in various places. Now, there's other specific quotations that are not formula quotations, many of them. And, of course, there's a multitude of echoes, allusions, and terminology so that Matthew is just full of the Old Testament no matter where, wherever you go. You scratch Matthew anywhere and Old Testament bleeds out. Okay? It's just, just the way it is. But there are ten specific ones, and here they are. These ten verses in Matthew, notice six of them are in his prologue leading up to Jesus' ministry. Or five of them. And they have this similar pattern. First of all, all of them say, this was done to fulfill. God is in the business of fulfilling his word. This was done to fulfill. All of them also say through the prophets, they talk about human agency. There's this agent of the prophets. We know the first one, Matthew 1.22, is by Isaiah. So Isaiah's in there a number of times by name. Jeremiah's name, the only two that are actually named, doesn't mean they're, as we see, Isaiah was used but not named. Through the prophet. So the agency is acknowledged, and all of them describe it as God speaking. So when we come to Matthew... We recognize that here is a man who himself esteems the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. Nothing less than the word of God. That is the faith of the man who wrote this passage. That is the faith of the man who has continued to writing the word of God all of the Old Testament writers you're going to notice are all, when they refer back, treat what's gone before as the Word of God. There's this continuous linkage of one prophet being read by and quoted by and expanded on by another prophet, read by, quoted by, and expanded on by another prophet, read by and quoted on and expanded on by Matthew. From beginning to end, it's the word of God. Now, if you're in the legal world, they call it chain of custody, right? You find some evidence, you go to a murder scene, and, oh, there's the gun. There's the smoking gun, right? So you take the smoking gun, and you bag it up, hopefully with the smoke still in it, and you tag it, you bag it, and you put it into the police headquarters, their evidence chamber, and it's supposed to be that you can sign this out, you can sign it back in if you need to look at it, but the whole time somebody's watching you, the whole time this evidence is clearly known to be the evidence that was captured at the scene. Someone hasn't switched a different gun with different fingerprints. There's this chain of custody. 
so that when things come to the legal presentation in a courtroom where people can go to electric chairs and things are dead serious, there is this honesty about the evidence. And you can see in God's word from beginning to the end that the word of God is in the chain of custody of prophets from start to finish. It's an awesome study. Uh, A guy named, uh, well, Norman Geisler wrote a little book, From God to Us. It was really awesome when I read it 30 years ago. I might might go, oops, if uh, you show me some things in it now. But my brothers and sisters, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he did it in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures that have been in the chain of custody of God's prophets since the beginning. And let's pray and give thanks to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and thank you we are not left to listen to people who are inspired. We have words that are inspired, words that are open to all. 2.2 million of them. Words in a book, words that have been translated into every language almost in the world. Most of the world can read this book openly. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for the confidence of it. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for that chain of custody that you register. If we'll read it, we'll see as we work through it, whether it's Moses writing the book and putting it in the Ark of the Covenant, whether it's others adding to that book, whether it's others editing those books, compiling those books, preserving those books, rediscovering those books. Lord, they are your holy scriptures. Lord, you brought your son into the world in fulfillment of them. Lord, you could have given him the name Mighty God and we would go around calling him Mighty God the Christ. But you didn't do that. You could have named him Wonderful Counselor and we would go around saying, Believe on the Wonderful Counselor, the Christ, the Messiah. But you didn't do that. Those things are awesome. Those things are true. Those things are real. Those things are a blessing. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus and those things represent it. Lord, you chose Jesus so that every time we would turn to him, we'd remember that in our sin there is forgiveness, that there is forgiveness with you, that, Lord, you delight to save, and you're always ready to forgive. So, Lord, at every time in our life, as someone has once said, or many have probably said, we keep short accounts with you. And Lord, may every one of us today just come to Jesus and make sure that our accounts of our sin have been resolved to this point in our lives. That we have dealt with everything we need to to be clean, everything we need to deal with for Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to smile upon us. Not because we uh, clean our act up, but because he cleans our record with his blood. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, fill our souls with this and just make Matthew to shine in all its glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.